Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, should Canada, the UK, Australia and New Zealand join forces on trade and security? We do a deep dive into Kanzik. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Our Friday shows, you may know by now, we do a little bit differently. We don't talk about news of the day, but we take a, a big issue, a big question, and we delve down into it with the brightest minds assembled. Not me, but the people we bring on to talk about it. And today I want to talk about Kanzik. Might not be a word that ranks top of your lexicon, but it's one that's gaining a bit more influence and a bit more notoriety. It was in the last two conservative election platforms. It would link the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada together. An agreement that would range from free trade, foreign policy cooperation, and any number of other things. That's one of the benefits of it. It would actually be a customizable and a malleable deal. You can kind of make from it whatever you want to make. And as we see a lot of the challenges that are coming about in getting countries to agree on things, is this the future of cooperation? Joining me is Stephanie Cusey, the Conservative Member of Parliament from Calgary Midnapore, also a former diplomat and a member of the Political Advisory Board for Kansas International. James Skinner, who's the founder and chief executive of Kansas International. And Andrew Lillico, we've had him on the show before, the executive director of Europe Economics and a big proponent of the Leave campaign campaign in the recent Brexit debate. Stephanie, James, Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. So let me start with, with you on this, James, because I, I know that when people hear Kanzuk, which certainly has a, a meaning in, in a lot of political wonky circles, but I don't know has necessarily entered the public consciousness yet. What are we talking about here? Is it a trade deal? Is it something akin to the European Union style relationship between countries? Or is it something entirely unique that we don't really have a model for in the world? Yes, yeah, a good question. Thanks for having me on the show as well. So to sort of briefly describe CANSOC, what it effectively is, is an acronym between Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. And the name is essentially, uh, was originally coined, I think, in the 1960s, but, you know, in the last five years or so, it's really taken on, a, you know, a brand new meaning, meaning closer cooperation between these four countries. Um, essentially, if I was to sum it up briefly, I would say it mainly revolves around three pillars. The first being reciprocal migration of citizens between these countries free trade, so uh, these nations can trade freely with goods and services, and foreign policy cooperation as well, and that would be things like educational initiatives, uh, military collaboration, things like that. Um, to your point where is it something similar to the European Union? Absolutely not. I mean, taking free movement, for example, in the European Union, uh, obviously citizens, about 500 million plus citizens in the EU are eligible to freely move between country to country, and there's very little checks across the borders there. With Kanzuk, it's very much based upon the already existing agreement that Australia and New Zealand have called the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement. And what that basically means is that a New Zealander can live and work freely in Australia, an Australian can live and work freely in New Zealand, but there are commonsensical security measures in place. For example, you cannot do so if you have a criminal record, you cannot do so if you have a terrorist affiliation, you cannot do so if you have an infectious health condition, lots of other conditions apply as well. So it effectively gives people that freedom to move between those two countries while also implementing common sense approaches as well to you know, ensure their safety and security for citizens. And the idea then is that, well, if these two countries have free trade, which they also do under the Closer Economic Relations Trade Agreement, 
if they have free movement under the Trans-Tasman Travel Agreement, and they also work together, you know, through foreign policy cooperation and the Five Eyes and other agreements, why not have two other like-minded countries come onto that as well, being Canada and the UK? And I think by doing so, all four of these nations could work tremendously well together, offer freedom and opportunity and business incentives for, you know, citizens of all four of these countries, promote economic growth, and just give people general uh, freedom to live and work in these countries too, which is a tremendous opportunity for everyone. Stephanie, I know this was something the Conservatives championed in the last election in September. I know the Conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, has been a, a big proponent of, of Kanzik for quite some time. Why is it something that you feel w- would benefit Canadians? Thank you, Andrew, and thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of yours, and it was excellent to get to know you better through uh, election 2021, primarily through the space of space, um, but it's a pleasure to be here, so thank you for having me. Well, as you said, our leader, Aaron O'Toole, has been a champion of this idea for some time, and it was actually placed within our policy at the 2018 uh, convention in Halifax, and I was very proud to be at the mic there putting it through Uh, as legislation for our party with uh, the Honourable Ed Fast, who's also been a champion of Kanzik as well from our party. Um, But I think what we really see with Kanzik is, and what is so appealing to myself and the entire Conservative movement and the Conservative Party of Canada, is really a return to solid values and foreign policy that we saw with the Harper administration, which has been sorely lacking in the Trudeau administration, I'd have to say. And this really is just a return to core values, including democracy, human rights, the rule of law, and the members of Kansas are just a natural fit um, for these shared values. I think it's never been more important than it is now, certainly before the pandemic with the uh, sort of great power balance struggle, however you want to define it in the world. I actually thought that would shift a lot more uh, than than it has post pandemic, but it it appears it's actually um, being intact. And I, I certainly know we could have another conversation about the changes we're seeing there, but really that's what it comes down to is that Conservatives have always clearly identified our values when it comes to foreign policy, including movement of people, including trade. And and that is the, as I mentioned, democracy, human rights, the rule of law, excuse me, free markets. And so supporting Kanzik is really supporting the values that guide our movement and our party. Let me turn to you on on this, Andrew, because James mentioned that there was a a big uh, boost of what we've seen between Australia and New Zealand and a perhaps uh, expansion of that that Kansas could bring to the UK and Canada. The big uh, red flag there, of course, is geography. These are not uh, countries that are as close to each other as Australia and New Zealand are. And I know that the geographic uh, distance has been one of the the bigger criticisms of of Kansas as far as, you know, the integration of trade. It's not like the Canada-US border, for example, where you have uh, more goods flowing across it than any other land border in the world. So uh, why do these countries that are in in some cases significantly far away uh, have the ability to work together as closely as Kansas would have them? Well, I think, first of all, um, there are a couple of things to say about this. One is that people, I think, underestimate the extent to which uh, in the modern world with um, modern communications. I mean, we're having an, uh, a, a cross-border uh, discussion even now that people communicate, and so the, the, the tyranny of distance, as it were, has been diminished by modern technology. Um, but I don't think really that's the main thing. 
Because the main thing about Kanzig isn't so much how the Kanzig countries deal with each other. It's more how they as a group deal with the rest of the world. So when people think of these kinds of alliances and agreements, they tend to think of them by the model of something like the European Union, where the aim is to have a certain degree of internal self-sufficiency. So that the key thing is how much you trade with each other or how you do things together. But actually, the, the, Kanzig is more a matter of how the Kanzig countries working together can face out to the rest of the world, how they make common cause on foreign policy questions on things like China. So, for example, there were there was a joint Kanzig um, uh, uh, select committee's letter about Hong Kong complaining to the Chinese about that at the time. Uh, it, it's about questions like so as well as dealing with that. It might be dealing in international regulatory spaces, perhaps agreements on um, climate change questions or the regulation of the internet or maybe Maybe uh, uh, in recently the UK has joined together with Canada and Australia in a joint medical regulation um, uh, group. The, so the, you have the question of there is a question of the internal inter integrity, and I think that that can work well in the modern world. But also have this matter of how they all look out together. In fact, as James pointed out, originally Kansas was coined uh, in diplomatic circles to talk about the way in which the Kansas group tended to caucus when they were voting on global questions. Uh, and part of the reason that the cancer group can do this is because they have such similar values and uh, habits and uh, natural affinities. Uh, and that also, because of those natural affinities, which obviously have a historic uh, connection um, uh, origin, and also because of that historic origin, um, we we even have direct um, you know relations. Many of us have relations who live in each other's countries. There are two million um, people with British, British, British passports, for example, who live in Australia. So you have very large uh, cross. Um, um, cross-country connections of that sort. Uh, and as, uh, going to a point that James point made earlier, one of the key differences, I think, with something like the European Union is because of those natural affinities, you don't need to have the same kind of uh, level playing field forcing uh, so that everybody is forced to do the, exactly the same thing, because we will naturally be inclined to do things which are close enough that through our natural affinities, we can work together without all being, uh, without needing specific legislation to make us do it. I think that's a very important point there, Andrew, and I'll return to you on, on this, James. And, and I would add to it as well that if you're trying to get all the countries to agree on, on trade, you would have some difficulties there, some, some interests that uh, might not be in alignment right away. And of course, that's all something you deal with in a negotiation. But then you add layers to it, like agreeing on security and agreeing on foreign policy, and it makes it a lot more complex. And one example of this that's very concrete is, is the Five Eyes Alliance, in, in which there's been some criticism of New Zealand. Uh, and, and how it wants to have a relationship with China versus the direction that we see the UK and, and Canada to some extent going. So how do you overcome some of those hurdles if you have an agreement that is so integrated on, on so many different levels? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I, I think the obvious answer to that is obviously just, you know, the tried and tested value of negotiation. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. In terms of five eyes, obviously, New Zealand has, you know, taken a bit of a different approach compared to Australia um, and, and the UK. Uh, especially with the new AUKUS deal. But, you know, at the same time, obviously, that, that's more around nuclear submarines and uh, nuclear capabilities. And there's always going to be disagreements, you know, no matter how closely akin you are and how, how much of a close affinity you have, you'll always have disagreements because every country has its own different values. But we're seeing that right now with the trade agreements that have been, you know, negotiated between the UK and Australia and the UK and New Zealand. You know, those uh, negotiations took some time. Uh, they weren't just straight off the bat, even though these, you know, these three countries in particular 
you know, Canada is obviously going to have their trade agreement hopefully uh, sometime next year. But these three countries, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, very closely aligned, very similar in terms of kinship and, their, you know, the, the Commonwealth membership and ancestry and things like that. But at the same time, those, those negotiations took time. And what we've seen now is that eventually the UK and Australia and the UK and New Zealand got round to agreeing uh, those trade agreements. And what they've also said as well is that, OK, we've now got the trade agreement in place. We've laid the foundation. What we can now do moving forward is actually improve on those. And already Australia off the bat have been saying, well, OK, to do that, what we're going to consider is actually liberalizing visas uh, between the UK and Australia. So, for example, instead of having it just as a simple uh, two year visa, like, like I believe it is right now as it stands, uh, you know, that's going to be increased to a three year visa. And it's also going to increase the age limit from those under the age of 30 to those under the age of 35. And of course, what you can eventually do then, uh, not just with Australia, but New Zealand and Canada as well, is eventually improve on that. So right now you might have a, you know, a basic foundation to say three year visa for those under the age of 35. Well, what we can do and, you know, obviously what Kansas International intends to do is to work with those MPs, work with those, um, you know, those cabinet ministers in each of those countries and say, well, there's actually added economic and sociological benefit to improving the age limit for those visas and improving the time length at which these people can stay in those countries. So it's all about negotiation and, you know, it'll happen down the line. It certainly takes time as everything in government does. But, you know, I'm very confident just by the rate of progress that we're making right now, it's it can be done, it will be done. And I think it's going to be beneficial for everybody in the long run. Stephanie, one of the challenges that has been put towards Kansik is that a lot of the things that a Kansik agreement would bring are already in existence in, in some form. The Five Eyes is one notable example of this, but even some of the regulatory uh, stuff you could deal with in a multilateral way without creating this new entity. So I, I guess the question is, what do you think the real draw is here that doesn't exist elsewhere? I would say the real draw is, um, I think, the collaboration of all of these aspects under a single agreement. I'll point out again that, once again, the Harper administration really was uh, the origin and the master of, of agreements historically. In fact, I had the honor of being in Peter Kent's office when he served as uh, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs for the Americas. Um, when the Canada-Chile uh, agreement came out, for example. So I believe that we have a history of strong, comprehensive agreements, which really are for the benefit of Canada. And I certainly would add that we are not seeing this with the Trudeau administration, as is evidenced by the situation we have this week with softwood lumber. And you know, Minister Ng is on her way to Washington as we speak with my colleague MP Randy Hoback in tow in an effort to try and uh, alleviate um, th this problem. Um, you know, so I think it goes back to what both Andrew and James were referring to, and that is really the history and the, the relationships. And, you know, that's really what we have amongst uh, the groups is just uh, respect for each other as a result of the values that I indicated previously, as well as uh, the history, as Andrew was indicating in, in his response. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's, again, going through these negotiations that James indicated, but for a comprehensive uh, agreement, a comprehensive accord, which, as I said, was strong within the Harper administration and has been sorely lacking in, in terms of not, not even comprehensive agreements, but uh, respectable agreements, respectable relationships between parties. And, and for all the reasons I've said previously, I think we can find this within the Kansas group. And of course, I believe 
the conservative party uh, is, is, it would definitely be the, uh, the best administration to under which we could achieve the most for Canada. Unlike NAFTA, which, well, I guess USMCA or CAUSMA or MUSCA, they, they, change, they change the name depending on which country you're talking about it in. But, but unlike the, this, which is more focused on the outcome, uh, one thing that you've noted, Andrew, is that, uh, and I'll quote you here, uh, Kansas, Kansas could be as shallow or as deep as you choose to make it. So in a lot of ways, it's a framework within which you have a lot of latitude, more than it's a very specific thing. And I was wondering if you could extrapolate on, on that a bit. Well, there are different, I mean, Kansik is a, there's a broad church of different kinds of people who uh, uh, believe in the Kansik um, type things. The, the, there are some who would only want to have a, a, a trade agreement um, and maybe foreign policy collaboration. There are others who would want at least the three uh, pillars, which uh, James has pointed out and that, that uh, Aaron O'Toole emphasized and that you would then maybe build on those a little bit. There'd be others who would want to have something that was closer to the European economic community in concept. And of course, you can imagine, uh, as with any of these things, there are those who would want to have a completely, uh, you know, a fully federally um, integrated country and, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. I, I don't mind having fellow travelers that don't necessarily. Those are, those are the ones who want a European Union military, I think, right? Yeah, the kind of, yeah, the Kansas equivalent of the people who want yeah. to have this European state. Um, uh, and, uh, but I, mean, I, I think all of that stuff is rather unrealistic at this at this stage. Uh, and, but I don't mind people who are um, who favour those things, supporting uh, us in the things that we're trying to achieve. And I, I think going back to something that uh, James said, and indeed Stephanie emphasised as well, the, the ideal here, I think, would be to get to um, the UK and Canada acceding to uh, the uh, ANSERT agreement between uh, New Zealand and um, Australia, which is regarded as the gold standard, the best of all international free trade agreements. Agreements, and to the Trans-Tasman tra Travel Area, which is an absolutely yeah, a superb uh, agreement for uh, guaranteeing appropriate movement of peoples. Um, uh, now, if we don't get, but I don't think that we should think that the types of progress that we make towards that constitute failure. And, uh, if you don't get all the way there, then you've still got the Kansas concept, because as much as anything, it's the, uh, an idea of um, who you have as your geopolitical allies, who are your best mates in the world that you work with on a wide range of questions. The actual specific agreements that you have, somebody once put it to me like this, they said that it was the thing that lets you do the thing. The agreements that you have, the point, as much as anything, the point of them is that they're, that they're the framework within which you deal together with China or deal together with, you know, who knows, Trump again in the White House or uh, deal together with the European Union in, in international agreements or in, uh, in things like whatever the next climate change agreement is. So it's um, or deal together with having a co collaborative space program or something. So it, it's the thing which lets you do the thing. And the thing that lets you do the thing, ideally, I would see it as having the kind of depth that, that Stephanie and James uh, want. But as James said, if we don't get all the way there in one step, I don't think that that's crucial. So you can have both this question of different people having different goals for how shallow or deep it is, but also you can have a progression through time. It isn't all or nothing. We can make it deeper and then somewhere along the way, we'll, some people won't want to go any deeper and the other people will. 
Um, but over time, we'll see what it is that in the future that we want to achieve. And, and I, I feel like we're making solid progress on this at the moment. In, in, it isn't in every cancer uh, uh, state, incidentally, a particularly partisan question. For example, in the UK, in, there's a huge cross-party support. The surveys have been done of MPs and, uh, and of um, Lords. And in fact, there's a little bit more support amongst Labour uh, MPs than there is amongst Conservative MPs and the Conservatives of the administration here at the moment in the UK. So uh, I think that, that it's worth noting, obviously the UK is negotiating a deal, it's a Conservative administration with New Zealand with the Labour administration. So these things in other, I know it's quite partisan in uh, Canada, but in other parts of Canada it's not especially partisan. And uh, I think that that may mean that if Canada can come around in the right sort of way, they'll be pushing it a fairly open cross-party door in the other parties. Stephanie, let me ask you about that. Why does this seem like, in the media's interpretation of it in Canada, just this little conservative pet project that's of no interest to anyone outside of the Conservative caucus? And that's a great question. Um, I just want to go back to one thing Andrew mentioned, that's the relationship between uh, Canada and the UK. And actually, he reminded me that in fact, the first policy announcement in the 2019 election for Manager Shearer amongst the first, if you recall from that telephone booth, was a Canada-UK uh, agreement. And so it, it is something that really transcends leaders within our party. I, I do believe that um, if, if I had to name something, I would say that it is seen as a conservative initiative, I, I believe, even though it is something that would truly benefit uh, all Canadians. I think that the, the government, as I said, they don't have guiding values. I believe that they are uh, reactive. I, I don't believe that they have a list of nations um, where they are going down the list in an effort to create accords. I, I'm not, not even sure that they have uh, identified the, the, the needs of, of Canada. It even appears to me sometimes that how these would be met through various accords uh, throughout the world. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to give them a lot of credit in terms of even strategically thinking about benefits for Canada beyond Kansas. But if, if I had to give a reason, it would absolutely be because this has essentially been a conservative initiative, a conservative passion, I would go so far as to say, um, because of the identified values that I mentioned previously of the Harper administration. And I think that's what makes them, the current administration, shy away from it, is that it would be impossible for them to put their mark on it. It would be very, or incredibly difficult. It would be impossibly difficult for them to uh, take credit for, for very difficult for the good that would come from such a relationship. And politics, uh, definitely, it, it is a partisan sport for sure. Every day I sit in the house, uh, I, I see it more and more with a, with a few exceptions. And if I, if I had to give a reason, that would be why, because it is rooted in the Conservative Party and would be very difficult for the current government to take credit for the, the so many benefits that would come from such an agreement. That's a, no, it's a very insightful 
uh, analysis of, of that, Stephanie. Uh, James, I'll ask you, looking at la the labor movement, I don't mean the labor capital L uh, in the UK or, or Australian context as far as a political party goes, but labor is in unions and, and workers' movements. How do they tend to respond to this? Because I, I know they're the groups that are often most resistant to free trade. You add into this free movement, and I could see, I could see it working out both ways there. Yeah, and it really does work out both ways. So we've had positive feedback and negative feedback from a lot of, say, union groups, labor administrations. You, you get some which say, well, you know, if we're going to advance trade and, you know, reciprocal migration between these countries, well, that puts a lot of workers at threat. You know, let's say you've got a British um, labor organization in the United Kingdom, for example, and they've got a bunch of Canadians coming over. They see that as well. You know, there could be a bunch of Canucks coming over to the UK to take our jobs, and that's not a good thing. But then you also get a lot of uh, associations as well who are very supportive of it to say, well, part of Kanzuk is that, you know, one of the things we advocate for is mutual skills, um, mutual skills recognition between the countries. So, for example, if you are a architect uh, in Canada and you want to go and live and work in Australia, well, what you have to do right now is that when you arrive in Australia, you no longer have a valid credential to do architecture or any you know, profession, really, if you're a plumber, or you're an electrician, what you have to do in Australia is then you then have to convert over your skills and credentials to what the Australians deem as valid and uh, collaborative with you know, their educational standards. And that can set you back years of training, can also set you back thousands of dollars right now. But under Kanzag, what we're saying is that, well, if you've got, say, a doctor in Canada and you want to go and practice in New Zealand, well, you know, hop on a plane, go to New Zealand, maybe do, uh, uh, I don't know, a month or two months worth of, you know, uh, switch over testing so you can actually comply with New Zealand laws. And then, you know, straight away, you can be a doctor because, you know, last time I checked a human body in New Zealand is pretty much exactly the same as a human body in Canada. So why not have that easy flow of people coming from Canada to New Zealand, New Zealand to the United Kingdom, United Kingdom to Australia and so on and so forth. Saves people thousands of dollars, years of time retraining. So you get a lot of associations like that, especially in the legal community who say, well, you know, if, if I can be a lawyer in the UK, why can't I be a lawyer in Australia? Especially as, as we have, you know, very similar common law. Uh, we have the Westminster style parliamentary system. You know, th there's a couple of differences here and there, which of course would require a bit more training and, you know, uh, certain educational credentials to be added on top of that. But nowhere near to the degree where we have right now, where a lot of people have to go and train for four or five years. They have to spend thousands of dollars and it's just not worth their time. So you get some, you know, to answer your original question, you get some labor movements, some labor organizations who say, well, no, we don't support this because, you know, trade could pose a threat to our workers. It could pose a threat to our way of life. And, you know, those, those are valid concerns as well. But I think the benefits of what you get with Kanzak in terms of, you know, the trade dynamics uh, and also as well, the mutual skills recognition, the freedom that gives people, the cost saving that gives people, the economic opportunity that gives these countries as well, whereby you get skilled migrants from all four of these countries, a massive labor market pool to go to any one of these other four countries where they can practice their trade or practice their profession without having to spend thousands of dollars in years of time. I think those benefits far outweigh uh, the negatives, which what you know a few labor movements are saying. So overall, I think it's a general massive plus for everybody involved. 
Andrew, I know when NAFTA was being renegotiated to become the, the deal we have now, there was, of course, the obvious discourse around who's winning and who's losing it. And, and this was uh, certainly amplified by the uh, the Trump administration at the time, saying that the U.S. was really the big loser of, of that deal. And, and if you bring this now into a Kansas context, is there going to be a, a clear winner in this? Is there going to be a, a country of the group that it's benefiting more than the others? And, and does that work against making it politically viable? I would say that it benefits all of the countries quite, and it also benefits the rest of the world having the benefits of us working together for them. Uh, so uh, that seems to me to be the key thing about that. And in terms of, look, there's some, the details of the of, of trade agreements. It depends, of course, on how large movements are. And people have emphasized it when you had the UK-Australia trade agreement, there have been claims by people that the Australians have gained more than uh, than the, the UK out of the deal, or what the Australian farmers and so on. I don't think that, that obviously people are going to say those kind of things. I don't think that that's particularly influential upon the debate. Uh, these these agreements are so overwhelmingly popular uh, uh, amongst the uh, amongst the general population that all of that kind of stuff I think really gets swept aside. And I think there's also uh, the 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 migration point is also overwhelmingly popular in in opinion polls. Uh, the UK is actually the least popular uh, in the UK. The idea of um, migration, but even in the UK, it's um, what sixty eight percent. I think in the most recent poll, it was it was the support for um, cancer. And when you go to uh, Canada, what's five to one support? I think uh, Australia seven to one, New Zealand eight to one um, support for uh, for free movement. And one of the things with that is. And, and I think it also goes back to some of the business with the unions uh, and the politicians as well. It's not that if really amongst any of these peoples, there's any resistance to the idea of movements, resistance to the idea of movements amongst the Kansas peoples. Everybody knows that that's popular. Everyone thinks that would be a good idea. What they worry about is that if they agree to that, they'll also have to agree to uh, movements from lots of other people. Otherwise, there'll be or either they'll feel like they have to agree to that, or if they don't agree to that, then they're worried about exactly what the critique is from various sorts of historical baggage. You can imagine you, the last thing any Australian administration wants to be uh, accused of is returning to a white Australia policy. And uh, the last thing that the UK want, it will want to do would be to have open borders to the entire world. So it, it, there's a question of how the um, politicians reconcile to themselves the, the question of, um, uh, having these specific agreements. And actually, the business of having specific trade agreements is, an, is a useful hook here, because what's happened in both the UK, um, U Australia and UK, New Zealand trade agreements is that they've included an element of visa easing. Uh, so as and, and I think that that idea that you connect them in some way, even though they're not really conceptually all that connected, but at least it gives you an excuse. So then if you don't have a trade agreement with um, the India or Nigeria or something, then you can say, oh, well, obviously we don't have one, so we don't have these provisions. And, and that allows you to achieve that, uh, that end, I, I think, but even though it's a little bit artificial. Um, so uh, uh, one other thing, I think that the politicians will get there in terms of a spin, because in terms of the, um, this, the support for these things, it's an absolute sophologist's dream. There can be no policy which is as overwhelmingly popular as the idea of Kansas free movement. Even in the UK, where it's the least popular, absolutely every demographic, it has majority support. Every age group, uh, every social demographic, 
every region of the country, this is a policy which, have, uh, which has majority support. So the, the politicians, it's like of policies which are not already in play, it must be the most universally popular policy which anybody is uh, suggesting at the moment. And the politicians just have to find a way to unlock that key. One last thing I'll say on this is, one other thing which has complicated this in the past few months, obviously, has been the COVID pandemic. Because once you don't really have much moving around at all, and especially when you have very aggressive restrictions as in Australia and New Zealand, the question of movement and the, the advantages of movement becomes less high up on the agenda. And it also probably becomes less high up on the agenda for um, Aussies and New Zealanders. I mean, all that business where um, these people used to go off on a, a you know, gap two or three years. Well, they've not been doing that for the last couple of years, have they? So I think that that will come back once we get past the, the business of COVID. That kind of pressure for movement amongst, amongst these peoples will come back on the agenda again. Yeah, Australians are, are still, I think, still fighting for movement within their own country right now, let alone elsewhere. But I, just on, on the note of movement very quickly, Andrew, wasn't the free movement one of the biggest hurdles that the Leavers had to overcome? Because that was a, a very popular uh, sentiment through the Brexit debate for even people that would have been on side with the Leave campaign elsewise, wouldn't they? Well, free, free, um, free movement amongst Kansas countries is extremely popular mm -hmm. amongst, uh, amongst Leavers. Free movement wasn't even all that unpopular within the EU when it was free movement amongst countries with fairly similar GDPs. When it was when you were talking about France and Germany and Spain and Italy and countries where there'd been pretty much free movement for 3000 years uh, between Britain and those bits of the continent, uh, nobody had any objections to those kinds of things at all. Um, once you started to try to bring in countries where the GDP per capita was only one quarter and lower and less of the of the level, so that in, uh, movement no longer became a matter of mutual migration, as mm. it is in Kansas, with people moving both ways, but all a matter of how many you let in. That concept of free movement becomes something completely different. And that, of course, doesn't exist at all in the in the in the Kansas setting. Uh, people would move in both ways and everybody from the can all of the cancer countries understands the idea that there'd be advantages in being able to go as well as uh, advantages in, in, in having the people come to you. That's a, a very, very important distinction. Uh, just as we wind down here, I'll, I'll ask uh, you, Stephanie, and I'll, I'll ask you as well uh, this question, James. Uh, we saw Canada excluded from AUKUS, which I know is a, a security-specific deal within the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. This was something the Conservatives in Canada were uh, quite frustrated about during the last election. But does this agreement threaten Kansas in a way? Not because it, it tries to do the same thing, but it, it creates relationships that still have the United States States very heavily involved? I think what it does is it actually emphasizes the terrible position that Canada uh, is in the world at this time and what a fall we've seen from 2015. So I think it's more important we look at the meaning of it outside of the two uh, agreements themselves because, you know, ultimately when we're considering foreign policy and certainly security, it should be with uh, objectives and ends in mind. So I don't think we should be thinking about um, the, the form that, that this would take or this over this, or because that happened, this isn't going to happen. I think it just highlights the dire situation that Canada is in currently on, on the world stage, just the lack of disrespect and disregard that is shown to our nation and our leadership at, at this time. And to go back to James' point about uh, migration, 
I'll tell you, as the Shadow Minister for Employment, Future Workforce Development, and Disability Inclusion, we have 1 million job vacancies in Canada right now. And this, of course, is precipitated by the pandemic and the difficulty of moving people from benefits back to jobs, um, but also an aging work population, but also uh, a failed immigration system, again, through the Trudeau administration over the last six years. And with Harper, it was always on an eye as to the economy, the future economic benefit of Canada, which, of course, benefits all Canadians. But again, another example of this government's failure of the execution of foreign policy, be it security, as you're referring to in this question, Andrew, or immigration, as James um, was discussing, but it all goes back to the values that a nation holds and that these values are used as the guiding principles for interactions with all nations on all levels. And James, we'll give you last word on this. Yeah, it's, um, I think it comes back, you know, this is just my, my perception. I'm, I'm open to being right or wrong about this, but I think it comes back to the sort of the different values that these governments have. Me personally, I don't think it's a coincidence that in terms of the AUKUS deal, which is Australia, the UK, and the USA. I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, the Australia and the UK have, I would say, right of centre governments, and Canada and New Zealand have left of centre governments mm. uh, in terms of participating in that. So traditionally, and, and again, maybe I'm stereotyping, I'm open to being wrong about this, but I find those uh, who are right of centre in politics tend to favour nuclear capabilities, a strong military. Uh, those left of centre, not so fussed on nuclear capabilities. And I think that, that played a big part in Canada, perhaps not being part of it. In terms of the USA, uh, whether that would perhaps threaten Kansas, I, I don't think so. But again, it's an interesting question and somewhat philosophical in nature as well. You know, what we at Kansas International advocate for is, is you know, strong uh, foreign affairs collaboration between these four nations. And of course, part of that is, uh, you know, working together on military capabilities. Now, statistically, if Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom were to work together uh, on their military capabilities, not combine them, you know, obviously just acting as nation states working together, they would in fact have the third largest military capability in the world. I think somewhere in the region of about $130 billion. And that's only after the USA and China. Uh, now, would the USA see that perhaps as a threat to uh, the, the sort of hegemony to, you know, military capability? Possibly, but would they also see it as a compliment to perhaps keep, you know, adversarial actors like China, Iran, North Korea in check? Maybe so. So the USA could potentially see Kanzak as a compliment to the work they're trying to do in terms of promoting democracy, human rights, peace, stability around the world. They could see it as a threat, but I think the USA would probably welcome the idea of Kansas, especially in terms of a foreign affairs capability and especially, you know, having the USA being a major superpower, having Kansas, you know, working together as the third largest military capability in the world. I think that would do wonders in terms of promoting international stability and peace and especially keeping adversarial actors like China, like, like the Chinese Communist Party in check in that way. So it's, it's an interesting question. It's very philosophical in nature. But overall, I think the USA, I don't think it would be a threat in terms of Kansas. I think probably the USA would probably welcome the idea. That's a good point, and it goes back to what Andrew said earlier about the importance of, of not only looking at Kanzig internally, but also externally, and how this block would then uh, interact with the world on, on trade and security. So great points all around. I want to give a big thank you to uh, Conservative MP from Calgary, Mindapur, Stephanie Cusey, former diplomat and a member of the advisory board for Kanzig International, James Skinner, founder and chief executive of Kanzig International, and Andrew Lillico, the executive director of Europe Economics. It was a, an absolute Absolute pleasure. Thank you all of you for joining. Thank you.
And with that, my thanks also to those of you who watched the panel. It's uh, great. I mean, I love chatting with these people, but I don't think I would uh, get them to agree to do it if no one was watching. Then again, you never know. But regardless, I appreciate you tuning in, and I appreciate the panelists sharing their time and insights. That does it for me for this week. We'll be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.